1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning we're going to consider verses 9 through 12. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is one or maybe two on the back table back there. Feel free to go back there as the shuffle is happening to pick up one of those Bibles. Um, and, uh, and if they're all gone back there, then there's a handful underneath the offering box in the back there as well. Uh, it's going to be important that you keep these words in front of you as I... As I um, as we unpack them together this morning, the sermon is always much more enjoyable if you see the words that we're referencing in front of you, um, and to know that these are not my words, I'm not making these up, but these are in fact the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by the Apostle Paul uh, some 2,000-ish years uh, ago. These words that Paul writes to the Thessalonians come in a larger chunk of Scripture, and we're going to reference some things that came last week before, and we're going to reference some things that are going to come later in another letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. But for this morning, we're going to just focus on these four, these four verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this text this morning comes on the heels of a pretty heavy text that we looked at last week, where Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about holiness and what it means to be set apart as a people, to be set apart as a church, to live both in individual holiness, but then together corporately in in holiness. And that led to some heavy, heavy ideas that came out of that passage. I mean, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to, uh, listen to that sermon because it's going to help understand, us understand specifically verses 9 through 12 here in 1 Thessalonians. Now, this may seem like a break from the first several verses in chapter 4, but it is in fact a continuation of thought for Paul in verses 9 through 12. And so what I hope to do this morning is to show how this is a continuation, not that this is an exclusive break, but that there is actually a continuation of thought here given to us in in chapter 4, which would be considered the instructive portion of this letter. This is a heavily instructive portion of this letter, and so for us, uh, we need to see these things as coming together in unity here as we approach these, these verses. Our culture is becoming more and more opposed to the Christian viewpoint of marriage, sex, and gender, and we explored that together last week when, we, when Paul said to uh, the Thessalonians, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And the cultural viewpoint can be traced down the line from the individual to the family, the family unit. And the building blocks of society are uh, families as defined by God. One man, one woman um, uh, joined together in covenantal marriage, producing offspring and disciplining them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And our culture has largely sought to redefine this marriage relationship, has largely sought to redefine the, the boundaries around family, away from how God defines these things in His Word, and towards a secular, sort of relativized, uh, uh, loose boundary definition. Today, John read uh, from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 in, in, during the scripture reading. And in verses 6 through, uh, excuse me, 7 through 9, uh, Moses writes the recording what God tells him You shall teach them to diligently, you shall teach them, these are the commands of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
Uh, this passage in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is often referred to uh, by the Jewish people as the Shema. And the word Shema means to hear. And it emphasizes the oneness of God revealed in Scripture. God, in fact, is one. And the first words of the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. The oneness of God, that there is one God who created all things and one God who sits enthroned above the earth. Our whole being, therefore, as is given to us as a result of the reality that God is one, is to devote all of our lives, they should all be dedicated to loving Him. But in the passage that I just read in verses 7 through 9, notice how nearly everything here is aimed at the household. There are a couple ideas that are a little bit individualized, and there's a couple community things, but most everything here is aimed at the household as the fundamental building block of society. We are to teach the commands, the biblical commands, God's commands to our children. We're going to talk about the commands when you sit down, this is in your house, and when you go to bed, that's in your house as well, and when you get up, that's in your house as well, and you're supposed to write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, and there should be no doubt what our homes as Christians are in fact about. Our homes are to be about loving the Lord our God, and our homes are to be built firmly, therefore, on the Word of God. The nature of the sin that we discussed last week when we saw that uh, Paul commands to the Thessalonians holiness, personal holiness and congregational holiness, is, uh, is carried through this passage this week. And you'll remember last week we talked about the fact that no one sins in a vacuum. That every sin that is committed, uh, private sin that is left unchecked, gives way to public sin. And this is especially true, we learned last week, in the matter of sexual sin. Private sexual sin may lead to more public expressions of the same kind of sin. But the reality is that the one who feels comfortable sinning in secret may not sin publicly in the same vein or in the same way. Certainly, private, unchecked sexual sin may result in adultery, but it does not necessarily have to. Sin, like lack of integrity, may be the result of a sin or life that's lived in sin privately. If you're willing to dismiss your sin in one area of life in private, why not in other areas of life in public? If you're willing to dismiss lustful thoughts as no big deal, why wouldn't you be willing to take advantage of others when you're running your business? Or to lie just a little bit when you file your taxes. Or to treat employees unethically. Or to take the perks of your employer that your employer offers a little too far. A lack of integrity in private, even in a different vein, may result in a lack of integrity publicly, in a different vein altogether. And this week, last week we also mentioned, and it's important to note again this week, That all sin seeks to pull others into its blast radius. And so when you're sinning in private, you're welcoming uh, difficulty, you're welcoming that private unchecked sin to become more public. And all of it results in a failure to love others. But when sin is properly identified with and dealt with in its early stages, the church will increase and abound in love for one another. So the private matters of sin are essential to identify in our own hearts as we live together in biblical community in order that the the command to love one another stays front and center for all of us. We would say that the gospel transforms the individual. This is a common way that we talk about the gospel. The gospel comes to us and offers us on the individual level forgiveness of sin. It offers us new life in Christ and we as new people are made into or as people are made into new creations when the gospel transforms us. That is the individual level. 
But as the gospel transforms individuals, it also transforms homes. And as it transforms homes, it also transforms cultures. And a household that is, that is transformed, each individual, by the truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came into the world to die for the sins of, of, of all, the good news that that, that that has happened for us as individuals then results in something like Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. A household that is marked explicitly by the truth of who God is. And as homes, more and more of them are set apart and made holy, are sanctified because of the work of Jesus Christ. Cultures are the next step. It happens in this order. Cultures aren't transformed and then households and then individuals. It goes the other way. Individuals and then households and then cultures. From the individual who experiences new life in Christ to the home that is now discipled under the model of Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 through to cultures of people who act, speak, and work joyfully, compelled by the command to love one another. And the last step is what Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about. He wants to see one individuals, two, uh, two households, and three, then the culture transformed by obedience to the command to love one another. So as we look at verses 9 through 12 here in chapter 4, there are two ideas that are going to guide our time together. And they come out of verse 11 primarily. But both these points take into consideration what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. So the two ideas this morning that will guide our time is love and the quiet life, and secondly, love in one's own business. Paul wants to give the Thessalonians practical ways that they are to love one another. Practical ways that they're to love one another in everyday life. So the first here, love and a quiet life. If you've been with us as we've studied 1 Thessalonians together, you'll know that one of the key themes that we've looked at throughout our time is everyday faithfulness. What does it look like to live lives of everyday faithfulness? Not just on Sunday morning and for, for this hour to 90 minutes on, on Sunday, but every moment of every day in every activity, in every, in every conversation, what does it look like to live in everyday faithfulness? And so Paul pairs together this idea of love and living a quiet life, and that should compel us to ask the question, what is the quiet life that Paul is talking about? And why should the Christian aspire to live a quiet life? Why should the Christian aspire to live quietly? Before we move into verse 11 to think about a Christian aspiring to live quietly, we need to unpack and understand verses 9 and 10 then in the pairing of love with both the quiet life and one's own business. Jesus Christ, Paul has been clear throughout this letter to this point, Jesus Christ frees us to love one another. Jesus Christ frees us to love one another. We do not love one another to obtain freedom, but we love one another as a result of our freedom. Christ's sacrifice for those who are joined to him by faith sets us free, and it makes us free to love one another. The good news is that we are now free from sin. We're no longer bound to its deadly effects. And so we don't live for sin and self-interest anymore, but we're freed to live lives of self-sacrifice, lives that give generously, both of what we have been given and of ourselves to one another. 
And this is the love that Paul has for the Thessalonians personally and the love that he puts on display as he sees them from afar growing as a church. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. He's not saying, I just came to you and gave you some words and some ideas and some thoughts and then departed at night. But I gave you and desired to give you my very self. Silas too. And Timothy as well. These men brought the gospel to the Thessalonians and they gave of themselves self-sacrificially, generously. I read a simple definition of biblical love this week and I found it helpful because our world is so confused about the word love. And no matter what you, when you hear that word, it could be many different definitions could be imported. But the definition that I read this week that I thought was very, very helpful for our context this morning is love is obedience from the heart. Love is obedience from the heart. And where we think oftentimes is obedience is being cold, we see very clearly that the expression of love as defined here is first seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. A sacrificial act that we can't even begin to fathom. Nothing lovely about us, and yet Jesus Christ died for us to bring us to God. Paul writes in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to point of death even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Love is obedience from the heart. We follow Jesus in this way. His love is seen in his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the author of Hebrews tells us that it is his, Jesus' obedience, was because of the joy that was set before him. Now we are commanded to love like Jesus loved. In 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Not out of obligation to some stone-cold command, but out of the overflow of joy that comes through knowing that Jesus first loved us and he gave us a new heart, a heart that is free to love. And so love is obedience from the heart, not just warm fuzzies or emotions. Love flows out of the heart that is free to obey Jesus Christ our Lord and looks like generously and joyfully giving ourselves for others. And Paul says here in verse 9, he says, now look at verse 9 with me. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul says that they're knocking it out of the park in the area of love. They are loving one another well. They are doing exactly what he has commanded that they do. Paul says the Thessalonians are doing well. God himself has taught them. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is producing hearts that demonstrate Christ-like love for one another. And Paul urges and exhorts the Thessalonians to love one another and do this more and more. Look at verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. But then in verse 11, he says, and... And then he gives us a bit of a list. And this is where we get our idea of love and the quiet life. Verse 11, and that you aspire to live quietly. Again, so we ask the questions, what is the quiet life that Paul is talking about? And why should we aspire to live quietly? 
So what is Paul not saying by living quietly? Because I think sometimes this idea has been misinterpreted by people in the church and they go the wrong direction here. What Paul is not saying is that the Christian should separate himself from the public square. Paul is not saying that the Christian should lock himself away and never engage the world around him. Paul isn't saying that Christians should move to the country and get off the grid. Paul isn't advocating for an isolationist approach to life. That would actually, if we were to take that as the interpretation here, actually run counter to everything that Paul has said so far. Paul wants the Thessalonians to live lives of holiness in order that the outsiders, those who are outside of the church, may look in and see the set-apartness that God has granted to them so that they might bear witness to the things that Jesus has done for them. And for the one who isolates himself, who moves outside of Christian community, that one is not capable of showing brotherly love. We'll remember back in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul talks about being face-to-face with the Thessalonians because it is a requirement to be face-to-face in order to demonstrate love in the way that he is communicating here. And so if you're isolated from the Christian community, you're in sin because you are failing to love others, and loving others is the most basic Christian command. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks out his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So Paul is not saying that the Christian should separate himself from the public square. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying he should separate himself from the church. He's not saying he should separate himself at all. That is not what is meant by the quiet life. Rather, Paul is communicating that the life of the Christian should be a life of what could be translated here as peace or tranquility even. The conversation in our world about work and life is often centered around the idea of stress. We say, how's work going? Well, it's just a little bit stressful right now. That is a typical response that you would hear if you asked someone that question. When our work becomes challenging, our circumstances become challenging, it can feel like the pressure is being applied to us and that puts us under stress. Now, what Paul is talking about here, at least in part, to live a quiet life is to think and talk about how we respond to stressors. The Christian life is not to be a life of fretting, like the world frets. When stressors are applied, we tend towards two things in our lives. We tend towards, again, isolation or we tend to lash out. If we isolate, again, just from Proverbs 18, we break out against sound judgment, we selfishly seek our own desire, and we should recognize the stressor and look for ways to love our fellow believers even in the midst of the stress. If our tendency is to lash out, then we fail to live the quiet life like Paul emphasizes here or prescribes here. And when we lash out, people around us become collateral damage and we fail to love them like we're commanded to love them. But we should recognize both of these stressors. We should recognize both of them and we should look for ways, even in the midst of the application of stress because of work or because of life situation that's outside of your control, we should still be looking to live a life of love for one another. Love that flows From the heart, love that is obedience from the heart. Jesus, the New Testament, doesn't put love on the shelf when things around us get difficult. It doesn't take the command and move it away from us and say, unless this is happening, the caveat isn't given. The command stands regardless of our circumstances. 
Consider what Paul outlines in Philippians 4. He writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians, will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Everyday faithfulness in the life of the believer is applying God's Word in every area of our lives. Where, When the pressure of work or circumstances in general comes down on your heart, where do you turn? The believer must trust that the peace of God has promised, the peace of God that God has promised is a reality. And we think, but my life is really difficult. I've got some really hard things going on that you don't know about. But God's comfort to you in those moments is that you can bring anything to Him in prayer. And that the peace of God is for you. He's not saying the peace of God is only for you when you've got things figured out. Or when things are going well. Or when your life is normal and seems pretty standard. Which one of us in this room is not under some form of stress? Which one of us in this room doesn't feel some form of pressure? at any point, at any point during your day. Many of you have felt that already even this morning. The peace of God, though, is for you. That's what this is about. To live a life, a quiet life, is to recognize that the comfort that God offers you is yours. That you can bring anything to Him in prayer. God is near and His peace is near to you. And so to aspire to live a quiet life is to aspire to live in full assurance of faith that God cares for you more as his son or daughter than you could ever even begin to fathom. That's what a quiet life is about. You don't have to worry about accolades. You don't have to worry about stressors. You don't have to worry about those things. When they seek to overwhelm you, remember that the peace of God is for you. It's for you. You don't have to conjure some social psychology understanding idea about your situation. You need to remember that the peace of God is for you. And trust Him. And live in light of this truth. We demonstrate love for one another by aspiring to live a quiet life. The way that we demonstrate love for one another is when we respond or when we when stressors come down upon us, when difficulty comes down upon us, we maintain our position that we are called first to love one another. Love for one another is obedience from the heart and obedience to the command Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, nor what you will put on. Is life Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? When we live under this command, when from our heart flows the obedience to this command to be anxious about nothing, to rejoice in everything, to be thankful at all times, this is love for one another. Love that comes from a quiet life. Now, will you feel pressure and stress? Yes. The question is how you respond to the the pressure and the stress. Aspire to live a quiet life. Aspire to live in light of the comfort that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. The next thing that Paul says, and this is our second idea this morning, the next thing Paul says in verse 11 is to mind your own affairs. And he also says to work with your hands. We're going to take those two things in one. But the second point is love in one's own business. Paul says that the Thessalonians ought to mind their own affairs and work with their hands. And it would seem that the Thessalonians, as we unpack later in in the second letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, is that they tended towards laziness. That they struggled with laziness. In 2 Thessalonians, 
chapter 3, Paul addresses this. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. So Paul tells the Thessalonians later to reject idleness, reject laziness, we could say. And he tells them that they should take their example as those who came and worked hard among them to bring about the fruit of the gospel. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to be productive and work well while they waited for Christ's return. Now, this probably would have been the reason, and we're going to see this next week as we get into further into chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, but one of the reasons that they decided that they weren't going to spend much time working was because they, they were thinking to themselves, well, Jesus' return is imminent. So we're just going to chill and we're just going to wait. But Paul says, don't do that. That's not what we're about. We're not about just keeping our hands twiddling our thumbs in our, in our laps. Rather, be productive, work well while you wait for Christ's return. So again, the two ideas that surface here in, in, chapter, or in verse 11, in chapter 4, is to mind your own affairs. This is the first thing that Paul says. Mind your own affairs. Now, just like living a quiet life has been interpreted poorly at some points, this is also has been interpreted poorly at some points. This should not be taken as mind your own business, like we would say it. Of course, it means mind your own business, but it doesn't mean mind your own business. Like when I was a kid, a popular phrase in the playground, someone would say something, and you'd ask to see or hear what they were talking about, and you'd say, well, just mind your own business. Like, don't talk to me. Get away from me, or a popular alternative, mind your own beeswax. I don't know where that came from, but Paul is not saying that you should mind your own business, like you shouldn't welcome anyone into your work or your world. When someone asks you a question, considerately answer the question. Don't say, mind your own business. That's what Paul told me to do. That would be a wrong expression of this, and yet at some points in church history, people have taken that to be the case. But what Paul is saying here is that you should keep a close watch on your work. This is part of living a quiet life. They're not dissimilar. They're not unrelated. Keep a close watch on your work as one who is commanded to love one another. Keep a close watch on your work. And the governing principle for your day-to-day work, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a farmer, whether you're an engineer or an accountant, is to keep a close watch on your work, considering that the governing principle for your work is love for one another. So, wherever God has appointed you, apply yourself fully in that area. We should know what our limits are in our work. God has made us to work and has uniquely gifted us to work. Wherever God has placed you in your work, work at it with your might, with all your might, because it is a way in which you can love one another. When Paul says, mind your own affairs, it means keeping a close watch on your home. That includes your personal finances and the stewardship of the material things that God has given you. Cleaning your house and mowing your lawn and keeping a budget and fixing what's broken and staying out of debt. Because this shows love for your neighbor and to your family. The Christian's home should be a hospitable place. It should be hospitable for your family so that they feel comfortable at home as a place of rest. But it should also be a hospitable place to brothers and sisters in Christ as you welcome them in and to those who who are outsiders. People should be able to come into your home regularly and feel comfortable and not concerned that their kids are going to bludgeon themselves or impale themselves with something laying around. This is love for neighbor. We, keep love, we love our neighbor by keeping our home in good repair so you don't drag down the value of the, the homes in your neighborhood. 
Mow your lawn so that your neighbor doesn't have to look at the jungle and your wife doesn't get a bit, uh, bit by an unidentified rodent in the way to the mailbox. This is love, for, love your spouse by mowing the lawn, by taking out the trash. Keeping a close watch on our affairs is keeping a close watch on our home. It's also keeping a close watch on our time. Christians should keep a calendar. They should keep their appointments. They love one another effectively when they consider others' time as important as theirs. Don't assume we do this all of the time, myself included. We do this all the time. We assume that your life is more full than anyone else's. And a lot of what this passage is about, and a lot of what this idea of minding your own affairs is about, is not assuming, is not assuming, not assuming that your life is crazier, that your life is busier, that you're under more stress than anyone else. If you have to cancel appointments, examine your heart and ensure that you're not doing it from a position that is in fact taking their time, others' time, into consideration not only your own. Love one another by keeping a close watch on your time. Similarly, minding your own affairs here means keeping a close watch on your business and vocational practices. If you own a business or if you work for a business, take into consideration that you should write things down. Now, many of you in this room has developed camaraderie with one another, which is a positive thing, a good thing. And many of you have been inspired to go into business together and have executed on that. Some of you have employed others in this room. Some of you have had employees in this room. Some of you have been the employer. Sometimes I've heard pastors say that this should be discouraged within the local church, and I disagree fully. I think that a way that we can show the world what it looks like to love one another is to freely employ one another, to go into business together, and to do so in such a way that is kind, generous, and self-sacrificial. Put godly business practices on display for the world. But, additionally, you should write down everything. Just because someone else is in this room today and you like each other and you smile at each other, today doesn't mean that you won't offend one another at some point in the future. And will that handshake agreement stand? Consider the fact that you should write things down, not because you distrust or want to think that there's a, a, a misplaced motive in every person in this room, but the reality is that loving for one another, love for one another shows us and imitates our Heavenly Father. God gave us a book. He wrote everything down. Not because he would forget what he said, but because we would forget what he says. So writing your business deals and plans and proposals down is a commitment to honesty with one another and an act of love. If brothers and sisters in Christ that you like today want to go into business, but they refuse to, turn or write, or refuse to write things down, you may be in for a bumpy ride. Insist on writing things down. Additionally, in this area, minding your own affairs in your business practices means not looking over your f the fence at a competitor within the church. Not looking over the fence at your brother's work and making assumptions also about his situation. You should not make assumptions about how good or bad their business is. God has given you your brother, God has not given you your brother's business, He's given you yours. And you should not assume that their choosing one of your competitors in any situation is personal. You should not assume that the bottom line is black or red for your brother's business. If your brother comes to you for business advice, don't assume details, but respectfully ask questions, believe the best, and offer the best advice that you can, even if it's a competitor. How will we mind our own business? How will we, how will we mind our own affairs? by putting first the principle to love one another. Minding your own affairs is being certain that your work and resources are being leveraged for the building up of the local church in love. 
Now, this is in the same vein, but it's, it's, it's a little bit different. When God equips you to provide for yourself and your family with work, he also intends for you to use those skills to generously give and serve the church. That might mean sheetrocking a fellow church member's basement or shingling their roof. It may mean organizing a, a closet in the church facility or helping make a meal on a Sunday evening. At the same time, no one ought, listen to me, no one ought to presume generosity of others. No one ought to think that person isn't being generous. That would be assumption and a lack of love for others. Minding your own affairs here means reflecting on the generosity and giving freely, cheerfully, and abundantly to the local church under the conviction and the compulsion of obedience that flows from a heart. Not looking around and saying, someone should take care of that, but saying, self-sacrificially, I will take care of that. This happens in what we see around us in the church facility. It happens with the church finances. If you flip over the worship folder and see a financial deficit on the back, you shouldn't say, someone should take care of that. You yourself should ask God, is there an area where I can be more financially generous with the local church? Again, love flows out of a heart that is free to obey Jesus Christ our Lord and looks like generously and joyfully living for others. Practical generosity is using the skills, the resources, the finances that God has given us to build up the church. Mind your own affairs. Don't say someone should take care of that. Think to yourself, how can I serve and sacrificially, generously give to the local church of my time, my treasure, and my talents? In sum, For all of this, what Paul writes here to mind your own affairs is minding your own affairs means putting your work, your home, your time, your business practices, your skills, and your talents in order at a heart-level obedience to God's commands. Love is obedience from the heart, and when you obey God from the heart, being generous with the local church by managing your household time and work well by writing down your business agreements, by recognizing your own limits, by leveraging your skills and and talents for the building up of the church, for not assuming or presuming upon your brothers and sisters Christ. And there's more to be said here from a practical standpoint. We could go on forever. I could give you tons of examples of how a life that is lived minding one's own affairs comes to bear on the love for the local church. But for the sake of time, steer clear of assumptions. Keep your home, your work, your business, your time in order. That will go a long ways to loving one another. Paul then says that, uh, that believers, the Thessalonians, should work with their hands. What he means here is that it's good to remain occupied. Christian men and women who find themselves with too much free time oftentimes find themselves far away from a life that is honoring to God because they begin to fill it with things that don't honor God. Young people in this room, if you're a middle schooler, if you're a high schooler, if you're a college student, if you're new in your career, occupy your time with loving others by obediently working, vocationally and sacrificially. Your youth isn't a time for you to live for yourself. It's a time to learn to live for others. Put yourself under the mentorship of an older man or woman who works well, works hard, and loves others well. Learn to be a husband and wife, or husband or wife, even if you are not yet married. Learn to be a parent, even if you don't yet have children. Learn to be a church member by becoming active and serving the church in your youth. You have energy, I don't have as much energy. That's a good thing. We need you. Or maybe you're nearing retirement age or you're now retired. Occupy your time with, uh, with lo- by loving others by obediently working. Just like your youth isn't a time to live for yourself, so your retirement isn't a time to live for yourself. The sum total of your life is not your work, and your work was a God-given gift to you to steward in order to love others. And your newfound free time 
is to apply at a higher level what you've learned by faithfully living as a Christian for 30 or 40 or 50 years. When Paul says to work with your hands, he's commanding the Thessalonians to stay occupied, leveraging all that God has given them for the sake of love. There is no time in the Christian life where we are called to or allowances are made to sit back and to stop loving one another. This is what Paul is aiming at here in verse 11. That leads us to a conclusion, and I want to give you three things briefly this morning. And because this passage is instructive, Paul gives us the conclusion already in the We don't have to go outside of what he says right here for the conclusion. And it's found in verse 12. Paul writes, so that you may walk properly before out be excuse me, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So a quiet life and a life that minds its own affairs leads to a church that walks properly before outsiders. Outsiders, now we have to define that because what does Paul mean when he writes outsider? Outsiders are those who have not turned from their sin, who have not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Outsider doesn't mean outside these four walls this morning. It doesn't mean uh, outside of this gathering or outside of this building. You genuinely can be in this room this morning and be an outsider. Because the definition of an outsider is someone who is relying on something other than Jesus for salvation and the life that they desperately need. Someone who, or someone who is downright denying that salvation is even necessary for them. You may be saying, God and I are good, I do the right thing most of the time, but that makes you an outsider because you've not professed, confessed that you are in need of saving. You're saying, I'm doing it myself. Everyone here who belongs to Buffalo City Church is someone who has said, I need something outside of myself to save me. And that only thing, the only thing that can save you is Jesus Christ. You can only come to God through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that covers sin. And so Paul says that the Thessalonians should do these things, live quietly, mind their own affairs, and work with their hands so that they may properly walk before outsiders. The church should be a benefit to its community. The church offers and should offer peace and not dissension. The church works hard and adds value to its neighborhoods and communities. The church acts generously to those around them. The church loves its neighbors in all of its conduct, in the home, in the public square, and in business. And what that means is that everyone who considers Buffalo City Church their home is representing the local church in Jamestown and is bound to love by obeying God's commands from the heart. The second concluding point that Paul gives is a quiet life and a life that minds its own affairs leads to a church that is dependent on no one. The church should not be accused of freeloading in its community. We should, as a church, give priority and take care of our own. Now, what Paul isn't saying here is that each individual shouldn't be dependent on one another. That's not what he's saying. But that the church should be dependent on, uh, on itself and not on the outside world. If a brother or sister in Christ is hurting financially or is in need of assistance, give to them. If the church, uh, the church should provide for its financial needs, for its operating and conducting uh, ministry. And all of this is dependent on the members of the church living quietly, minding their own affairs, and working with their hands, governed by the command to love one another. And we should meet the needs of others within the church and then consider the outside world. If we cannot be generous enough to meet our own ministry costs and the needs of brothers and sisters with whom we are covenanted within the local church and membership, then we should not presume that we can be generous with outsiders. We must be governed by love 
in order not to be dependent on the outside. Love flowing out of hearts that are free to obey Jesus Christ our Lord, generously and joyfully living for others. The last thing I want to say this morning, just a simple statement. We must know and live like every moment we experience, all the work we do, and everything we've been given is designed to be used to love one another. Friends, everything that you've been given, every moment is as simple as that. There is not one thing that is given to you that is not to be leveraged to love one another. May God teach us to love one another in all of these ways through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the truth that's contained here. God, we thank you for the practical wisdom, even, that's given to us throughout the pages of Scripture. God, would we not presume upon one another? God, at the individual level now, would we check our hearts and, and see if we are living generously, joyfully, sacrificially for one another? God, would you convict us in areas where we have put ourselves above others? Would you cause us in these moments to walk away from this place knowing you more fully and the love that you put on display for us in the person of Jesus Christ? God, would we trust you more with all that we've been given? Would we not clench our fists tight when things go awry in our world? when unexpected expenses come to us, when unexpected workloads are levied against us, when political upheaval, when economic difficulty all seem to seek to crush us, when our families go in a direction that we desire them not to go. God, but we would recognize would be comforted by the peace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ? Would we live quietly? Would we mind our own affairs? And above all, would we love one another? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.